<clears throat> Welcome to Medical Grand Rounds today. We're delighted to have Ali Asher, one of our own faculty, do the Grand Rounds today. The code for getting CME credit today is PG4R. If you text that, um, that is an R, R. Uh, you text that into the appropriate place. Um, Allie has no conflicts of interest to declare for this presentation, and she's going to be introduced to us by our own Jeff Munson, the Section Chief of Pulmonary and Critical Care. Jeff? Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Um, before I talk a little bit about Allie, I want to introduce uh, Joe Lynch, for whom this lectureship is named. Uh, unfortunately, Dr. Lynch couldn't be here today. Um, he's enjoying the more balmy climes of Southern California. Um, he has endowed the Joseph P. Lynch III Endowed Lectureship, which is dedicated to pulmonary and critical care medicine topics. He is a graduate of Dartmouth Medical School in 1971. Um, he then did his internship, residency, and fellowship in pulmonary medicine at the University of Michigan, where he then was on faculty for 25 years before moving to the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Um, he's been there since 2003 and currently holds the Holt and Joe Hickman Endowed Chair of Advanced Lung Diseases and Lung Transplantation and is also the Associate Chief of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care, Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Um, we are deeply grateful for his support of this lectureship and um, I appreciate your support in attending. Um, moving on, today we're going to be talking about cystic fibrosis, which is really an interesting story and a success story in medicine. And to tell us about that is going to be Dr. Allie Asher. Um, Allie started her medical training at Vanderbilt, where she did her undergraduate and medical degree before moving to the University of Iowa, where she was a resident internal medicine and fellow in pulmonary and critical care medicine. At Iowa, she also did her PhD in translational biomedicine. Her career was first focused on sepsis research with her mentors there, but then when she moved to faculty here in 2009, moved into lung immunobiology and with a specific focus in cystic fibrosis. She's really done tremendous work in this area and has been recognized as a regional and national expert in CF research. She's been involved in our CF center throughout her time here and currently is the director of the Therapeutic Development Network at our CF Center and also the Translational Research Corps at DHMC. She's been funded by NIH and the CF Foundation, among others, and has been widely published in this area. Please join me in welcoming Allie for Grand Rounds. Um, can everybody hear me? Okay, good. Um, thanks for that introduction, and um, thanks for the invitation to speak today. I'm looking forward to talking to you about what I think is a really interesting topic. So anybody who's really spent much time around me the past few months uh, can tell you that I really debated what to talk about today. And it was generally going to be cystic fibrosis as an overarching theme, and I went from should I talk about a lot of the research that's being done at Dartmouth and really go through some of the things that are being sort of pioneered here in labs, both in this building and on the other campus, or really talk more about the clinical manifestations of CF and treatment of CF? And to me, the most interesting part of CF is really the story of how CF treatment and the understanding of CF in general has really progressed over the past 25 to 30 years. And so I really want to share that story with you today. And I feel like the story is really compelling. And in a lot of ways, it's a story of how CF took over my life, because this story was so compelling to me that I really wanted to be a part of it. And so today, I'm going to talk to you and share this story. And initially, we'll just briefly describe the epidemiology and key clinical features of CF. Um, and then I want to go through with you the story of how the CFTR, or cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator gene, was discovered. Um, and how that then led over a couple of decades to the development of novel therapeutics uh, for the treatment of patients with CF. And, um, and how now we can take those novel therapeutics that have been developed and take them back to the bench to better understand how CFTR functions and, and understand how it impacts the different cell types to really better understand how we can treat our patients. 
Um, so as Rich mentioned, I, ha I, I am actually going to talk about a lot of different pharmaceutical companies during this talk, but I have no financial relationships to disclose related to this presentation. They're just definitely a part of the CF story. So CF, as most of you probably know, is a multi-system multi genetic disease that's caused by dysfunction of the CFTR protein. Um, it's the most common fatal genetic disease among Caucasians in the U.S., um, and it causes a progressive decline in lung function, which I'll go over uh, in a little more detail in a couple of slides. And there are periods of acute worsening of respiratory symptoms that are termed exacerbations. And it's really important to note that 85% of mortality from CF results from lung disease. And so lung disease is really the major focus of treatment therapy um, to prolong the lives of patients with CF. So uh, children with CF used to uniformly die during infancy until we sort of understood a little bit more about the disease. And now the vast majority of CF patients reach into adulthood. Um, for the first time uh, in 2015, the, C the CF Foundation collects registry data on all patients and posts that data and publishes it and makes it publicly available. And for the first time in 2015, the median survival was over 40, um, which is actually a huge advance. Um, and, and in that time, there have been these novel CFTR mutation-specific therapies that have become available that have really changed the way we treat and manage these patients. And we hope, as we learn more about how these um, mutation-specific therapies work, that it will actually prolong life even further. So there's definitely, this is just sort of a cartoon. This is not meant to have any specific numbers involved. But the idea is that over time, there's this progression of lung disease, and as patients age, um, their FEV1 declines over time. And there are these periods here at the bottom where, um, where we call these exacerbations, where patients have worsening respiratory symptoms, increased cough, they may have fevers, produce more sputum, and we term these exacerbations. And often patients are in the hospital during this time and require treatment with IV antibiotics and other therapies. And after treatment, you'll notice here at least, um, the way that I've drawn this, they haven't come back up to their prior baseline. And in about 25% of patients, this is what happens. They come in with an exacerbation, their lung function's down, and they get better, so they're clinically improved, but their FEV1 actually doesn't rebound back up to their prior baseline. And as that happens multiple times throughout somebody's life, you see that slope and progression of lung disease. And so... The idea is that if we can prevent exacerbations and stop these um, steep declines in FEV1 where we don't rebound back up, we could potentially prevent that slope from being that steep and prevent the loss in lung function over time. So the hallmark of CF lung disease is bronchiectasis. And on a chest x-ray, what that looks like is, I don't know if there's a pointer. Does that show up? Nope. Um, so... Um, what that looks like, we call it sort of rail, tram tracks or railway, railroad tracks. And normally, in a normal airway, the airway is very thin. And um, you don't necessarily see it on a plain chest x-ray. But in CF, the airway walls are thickened. And um, there's air in these dilated um, airways. And you can see what looks like a railroad track or these two lines of um, thickened airway wall with air in the center. And on a CT, that's really more characterized by what we call engagement or sig signet rings. So normally, um, the, the airway or the bronchus and the vessel track together, and you see them next to each other. But the airway is much smaller than the vessel, typically. And in CF, the airway enlarges. And so you see this enlarged bronchus with this vessel next to it, and it looks sort of like a ring with a stone on the end of it. And you can see that, and that's sort of the hallmark characteristic of what we see radiographically in patients with CF. And what that looks like, and these are actual numbers, and this, uh, the bottom part is a, a graphic that I pulled from the CF um, registry data of an individual patient of mine over time, where you can see um, his FEV1, which is the graph in the middle on the bottom, that declined over a several-year period as his lung function worsened. And the last lung function on this graph is um, the one that's depicted above with the FEV1 of 19%, which is obviously severe airflow obstruction. I'll tell you, this story has a happy ending because this patient was transplanted and actually has perfectly normal lung function now and is very healthy. So, 
Um, but that's not always the case as lung function declines in CF. Um, so that's just sort of my brief overview of what we see clinically and what CF lung disease looks like and to give you an idea of how severe this can become and why it's really important to treat this and try to prevent this progressive decline in lung function. So I'm going to take a step back and talk um, historically about how we know what we know about CF. So does anybody know who that is? No, okay, good. All right, so that's Dorothy Anderson, who is credited mostly in the literature with being the first person to describe CF. And actually, interestingly, I, I knew a lot about Dorothy Anderson, but I didn't know until I was preparing for this talk that she actually grew up in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, which is sort of interesting. Um, so she grew up in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, and she went to Mount Holyoke as an undergrad and went to Johns Hopkins Medical School, where she graduated in 1926. And she wanted to be a surgeon. But in 1926, women were not allowed to be surgeons which could completely be the topic for another one-hour Grand Rounds, but we won't really go there today. Um, but, um, so in 1926, she had to be a pathologist. That was the closest she could get to being a surgeon. Um, and as a pathologist at Columbia in New York, she noticed this series of children who had died that she had performed autopsies on where she found the pancreas had cystic changes and fibrotic replacement. And so she described this and wrote this case series in the early 1930s that describes cystic and fibrotic replacement of the pancreas in children and hence the name cystic fibrosis. And so she's pretty much in history um, recognized as being the first person to describe this and name um, this disease. And then as time went on, um, more was learned and understood about the relationship to this with, lu with lung disease. And as these more case series were described, the, an autosomal recessive inheritance pattern was described. And so in 1949, uh, Lowe wrote a paper where he postulated one gene, one protein, based on this autosomal recessive inheritance pattern. Um, and then fast forward several years, anybody know who those guys are? You've you got to know the guy in the middle is Francis Collins, right? Any, anyone else on there look familiar? So that's uh, Jack Reardon on the left from the University of North Carolina. That's Francis Collins in the middle, and that's Lapchi Choi from the University of Toronto on the right. And this picture was taken in 1989, but the story actually started before then, when Francis Collins was actually a second-year resident in internal medicine at the University of North Carolina in 1978, and he was on the medicine wards taking care of patients, and he took care of a 19-year-old woman with cystic fibrosis. And that's actually a really important part of the story because if you hear him describe this, that was a moment in time where he became fascinated with this disease. And that's actually really important to the story because it's unclear whether he would have really been interested in going through the process of discovering this gene if he hadn't actually seen that patient on the wards as a resident. Um, so that was 1978, and so then fast forward to 1985, and Francis Collins was, um, had his own lab at the University of Michigan at that point. And he was doing research um, in this area. And at the same time, Lapchi Choi had described that the gene for CFTR was located on chromosome 7. And the two of them were trying to figure out how they could work together to figure out what about this gene was abnormal and what caused this disease. And so they joined together, and there was a new technology or technique out called chromosome jumping, where you don't actually have to look at the entire chromosome. You can sort of say, all right, we know it's between this area and this area, and so we're going to look here and try to find exactly where the nucleotides are different and what the defect is. And so... Um, they tell a story, and I've actually heard Francis Collins speak about that. It's, it's actually pretty fascinating to hear him tell this story. So it was 1989, and he and Lap Chi Choi are trying to figure out how CFTR is defective and what causes this disease. And in 1989, the most technologically advanced mode of communication and data transmission was fax. 
Okay? So the two of them <laughs> sat in a room where they were getting fax transmission after fax transmission with just nucleotides across sheets of paper. And they were going through this by hand with pen trying to figure out what this was. And somehow they saw, and the nucleotides, and they had the amino acid of the protein. And they saw that in the patients with CF, um, there were 1,479 amino acids. And in the normal patients, there were 1,480. So there's one amino acid missing in the patients with CF that was present in the patients without CF. And then they went through this part of the chromosome where they knew that this defect had to be, and they found um, three nucleotides missing. This is by pen and paper. Three nucleotides missing in the CF patients versus the healthies, which resulted in deletion of phenylalanine at position 508 in the CFTR gene or the F5, F508-DEL mutation, which we all know is the most common mutation in CF. And so they figured this out. Um, and then they collaborated subsequently with Jack Reardon, who was an expert in um, ABC protein uh, transporters, to try to begin to uncover the 3D structure of this protein, which he did in collaboration with them. And in August of 1989, they published this in Science. And on the cover of Science is a four-year-old boy named Danny with cystic fibrosis. And so this was really an amazing thing. And so this is really what they discovered just on the bottom. So that's normal on the top. And on the bottom, the CTT are absent in CF, which results in an absence of F or phenylalanine at that position, which was enough to cause significant disease and um, early mortality in these patients. And so, and this is a press conference of, with Francis Kahn speaking in 1989. Consider what has been accomplished here in an analogy of climbing a mountain. And this is a mountain that nobody's ever climbed before. And the top of the mountain is called having a treatment that cures this disease. What we've done and are talking about today is establishing a very prominent camp along that way, which allows us to look forward and have a much, much better idea of where we're going. But we don't know what chasms lie ahead, what cliffs, what rock walls. And since we're just beginning to glimpse the protein product of this gene, it's too soon to tell what it will take to give it a little boost to do what it's supposed to and cure the disease. So he couldn't have actually been more right because it was much, much, much more complicated than F508-DEL, as it turns out. Um, so just a little bit about the gene. So CFTR is located on the long arm of chromosome 7, and it's huge, 250,000 base pairs, um, which makes it even more amazing that they figured this out um, in 1989 with the technology that they had at the time. So the most common mutation is a deletion of phenylalanine at position 508. That's 70% of mutation, CFTR mutations in the U.S. are F508-DEL. The remaining mutations occur at nearly 2,000 different sites on the gene for CFTR. So this ended up being incredibly complicated, this complicated. Um, so of those nearly 2,000 mutations, they've been divided into, um, into classes. And so you can see on the left on your slide, normal um, CFTR is made, it's processed through the cell, it's moved to the membrane where its function is to actually allow anion um, flow, chloride flow through the channel. Class one mutations, there's no functional CFTR made, so there's no transcript. These are stop mutations, and so the transcript's never made, no protein is made, and so there's no protein on the cell surface. Class II mutations, which is where F508-DEL lies, those are mutations where the protein's made, but it's so, it's misfolded in a way where it's so defective that the cell machinery recognizes it as abnormal and degrades it before it gets a chance to get to the cell surface where it needs to be to function. Class three mutations are what are called gating defects, and you're going to hear me talk about one class three mutation in particular later in the slide, G551D which is the most common class three mutation and the, one of the top five most common mutations in, in the U.S. And so these, um, these proteins are made and they get to the cell surface, but the channel doesn't open properly. And so there's no chloride flow or minimal chloride flow. 
um, the class four mutations, um, these, ch these channels get there and they have some function, but very, very, very minimal chloride gets through, not enough. And then the class five mutations, there's, they get through, they have normal chloride flow when the protein gets there, but there's either rapid turnover or not enough protein being made. And what's been described over the years are significant genotype-phenotype relationships. And so the more severe disease is associated class one, class two, and to some degree class three mutations, and a class four, class five mutation are associated with milder disease. Um, and if you have one mild mutation and one severe mutation, the mild mutation predominates because you actually don't need full CFTR function to actually be phenotypically more normal. Um, so that's actually important to note too. So the Toronto um, Children's Hospital actually maintains a database that they call CFTR1 of all of these mutations and it's available online to search and um, it changes weekly. I mean, there's new mutations that are added in as people are diagnosed and rarer mutations are discovered. Um, but what this is, so this, obviously it's complex and probably more complex than, than um, Francis Collins and colleagues ever thought it would be when they discovered this in 1989. Um, but knowing this and understanding these different classes of mutations and the different mutations themselves has really provided an opportunity to provide more personalized care to patients because we can understand their CF better. It's not all the same. The patients aren't all the same. Their disease isn't all the same. And so understanding this allows us to treat them in ways that are the best way to treat that particular person. And I actually love this picture. So this is um, uh, really cal uh, cal shows the um, advances that we've had in CF in 20 years. So this is an article that was published in Nature, actually the month I started working here at DH in 2009, um, that talks about 20 years later. And that picture is Danny at age 24, holding the journal on which he was on the cover at the age of four, 20 years prior. And he's actually doing really well, and he's pretty healthy. and that article really describes the advances in CF in 20 years, and I would say that in the past almost nine years since then, there have been more advances that have been made, which have been really um, amazing. And a lot of those advances have come because of advocacy and work done by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. So I don't expect people to know this, but does anybody know who this guy is? No. All right. So this is Bob Bell. And Bob Bell was the CEO of the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation for a while, up until a couple of years ago. Um, and before that, he was a biochemist at NIH, and he um, was a, a really pretty prominent researcher. And the CF Foundation, interestingly, was formed by families. It was formed by families who had children with CF or children who had died of CF in the 1950s. And, and even at the outset, one of their main focuses was research. They really wanted, they didn't want other families to go through what they went through. And they wanted to be able to promote discovery and understand the disease better and find treatments so the kids could live longer into adulthood and live healthy lives. And they actually recruited, these families recruited Bob Bell away from the NIH and to the CF Foundation. And in 1994, he became the director of the CF Foundation. And he was really excited. He always described being really excited about gene therapy and sort of watching, gene, the, watching the gene therapy trials. And, and then they failed. Um, you know, Francis Collins and James Wilson at Penn um, did a lot of different studies, and, and they didn't work. They had really exciting results in baboons, and when they took them to humans, they were really unsuccessful. And in the, in the late 90s, Bob Bell felt like he really needed to do something, and then do something different to really promote um, better treatments and a better understanding, and that if gene therapy wasn't the answer, maybe we could try to fix the protein. And maybe fixing the protein would be the answer. And so in 2000, um, Bob Bell formed what was called Cystic Fibrosis Foundation Therapeutics, which is a spinoff from CFF, which sort of is where all the clinical trials are housed. Um, and there's some fundraising involved in, in developing funds for those clinical trials as well. And what he did, which was 
deemed a little bit crazy at the time was he worked with some families, um, a lot of different families, one uh, particularly prominent family from Massachusetts and then a gentleman named Joe O'Donnell who had a son named Joey who died of CF at the age of 12. And Joe was a prominent fundraiser um, and a major community figure in, in his area. And he, they raised a lot of money, which they used to partner with a pharmaceutical company called Aurora Biosciences in 2000 to try to help promote drug discovery in CF. And this was really important because there's only 30,000 patients in the U.S. with CF. And so the idea of these drug companies being able to, being willing to assume the risk of drug discovery when you're talking about a really small patient population, they weren't willing to do it. And so someone else needed to assume the risk. And Bob Well was willing to assume the risk. And it was a little crazy at the time. And he coined the term venture philanthropy. Um, that's what he called this. So venture philanthropy is basically raise money from donors, invest said money in small pharmaceutical company so that they can screen small molecules to, for the ability to impact CFTR function. So let's just see if the audience is awake here. Who thinks this is crazy? <laughs> crazy? It's totally going to work and be successful? And in... 11 years, you're going to have that medication on the market, and then in 15 years, you're going to have that one? Because that's what happened, but it was a little crazy. And there's a lot of serendipity to this story, too, and part of it has to do with these two guys. So with Aurora Biosciences, which subsequently was bought out by Vertex Pharmaceuticals, came um, on your right, Paul Negalescu, and then a couple of years later, on your left, Fred Van Gore. And Paul Negalescu was a cell physiologist who actually studied CF at UC Berkeley when he was a graduate student. And he was really passionate about this. And you sort of have to wonder, if he weren't as passionate as he was, how, how would all of this have actually happened and proceeded the way that it did? And so they started out actually looking at ways to fix F508 Dell. And they knew that to fix F508 Dell, they had to find some compound that could bind to it to stabilize it, get it to the membrane, and then another compound that could bind to it and help it open to allow chloride flow. And after screening for this, they Paul Nicolescu decided that maybe that was too grandiose a place to start. And maybe where they needed to start was with one of these mutations where all they needed to do was open the channel. And so he picked the G551D mutation, which is the mutation that I described, class three mutation that gets to the membrane, but the channel's not open. And so they had these big, you know, they were doing these high throughput screens. And actually, over four years, they screened almost 400,000 compounds. And the way this was set up was that he had these um, human bronchiepithelial cells in these wells. And then they put these compounds in. And if chloride flow happened, this, the well fluoresced blue. So you could eyeball it and look at it and say, okay, there's nothing blue, there's nothing blue. And there was one day that one well, or there were a few wells that fluoresced blue, but there was one day that this one well fluoresced blue. And he then went to the microscope. And it, to hear him describe the story is actually really interesting. And one of the hallmark features of uh, epithelial cells in CF is that the cilia don't work. So cilia and bronchial epithelial cells normally sweep and beat, and their idea is to sort of take debris and mucus and move them up towards the mouth. And in CF, they don't work. They sort of lay flat. And so he took um, G5151D human bronchial epithelial cells, and he looked at them under the microscope, and the cilia were flat. And one of his colleagues put this compound, which was then um, subsequently known as VX770 and now marketed as FDA-approved Ivacaftor, they added that to the G551D cells, and he looked through the microscope, and he saw the cilia start to beat within 60 seconds. And you hear him tell the story. It's interesting because he says he sat there and he started to cry because he knew what they had found and, like, what the potential implications were for that. So it's really... I mean, that's an amazing part of the story. So what those compounds did, so that compound, VX770, is what's called a potentiator. And so what a potentiator does is it increases the flow of ions through the CFTR that's present at the cell surface. And it's quick. Like he said, 60 seconds, the cilia were beating, and it looked normal and healthy. 
The other type of medication that they were looking to try to discover is called a corrector. And so a corrector is going to increase the cell processing and delivery of CFTR to the membrane. So bind and allow these defective CFTR proteins to get to the membrane. And that takes a longer, that's a longer process. The cellular machinery is a little slower, and so that, that, that takes longer to sort of get these proteins through. So that was late 2003, early 2004, that he identified this potential compound that they wanted to take to studies. And in 2010 and 2011, there were phase two and phase three trials published in the New England Journal of Medicine on this compound, VX770, in patients with G551D mutations, showing significant improvement in lung function at two weeks that sustained out to 48 weeks. This is about a 7% improvement in um, percent predicted FEV1 over time. They also had improved sweat chlorides, um, improved um, symptom scores. And G551D is not that common. It's one of the more common mutations but it only impacts 4% of patients with CF in the United States. And so it's not a huge number of patients that we're talking about. And so not a huge number of patients were impacted by this. But what it did overall globally in the CF community was it showed us that restoring CFTR function results in dramatic improvements in clinical outcomes for patients with CF. And that was important to know, because if it didn't, then we sort of needed to go back to the drawing board and figure out another way to impact this. And the other thing is it gave us the opportunity to understand what exactly are the benefits of restoring CFTR function. Does it just limit it to lung function, or are we going to see other benefits? Are patient, is weight going to be better, nutritional status? Are we going to see less pancreatic insufficiency, less um, you know, other complications, kidney stones, other complications that patients have? And so it gave us opportunity to really look at that in a way that we could never look at before. Um, Subsequent studies occurred after this looking at what happens to patients with, who are started on this drug, which was ultimately FDA approved as Ivacaftor, initially just for patients with G551D mutations. So this is a study published by Steve Rowe a few years later looking at um, patients, this is looking at hospitalizations and looking at hospitalizations in a group of patients with G551D mutations in the six to 12 months or zero to six months prior to starting Ivacaftor, and then zero to six months and six to 12 months after starting Ivacaftor. And you can see there's a significant reduction in hospitalization. So the exacerbation rate decreased significantly. And this will be a common theme that you'll hear me say, the exacerbation rate decreased out of proportion to the change in lung function. So the change in lung function was more subtle. The change in exacerbation rate was massive. Um, the other thing this allowed us to do, um, having Ivacaftor out there, was how much CFTR do we need? Do we need to get people to be normal? And so this is looking at CFTR activity. So this is based on nasal potential difference uh, versus sweat chloride. <clears throat> um, and it just shows, so non-CF all the way over on the far right, normal CFTR activity, low sweat chloride versus the severe mutations where there's pancreatic insufficiency with really high sweat chloride and almost no CFTR activity. And Ivacaftor was there. So you had significant clinical improvements, but you didn't have to get them all the way to normal. And that was really important to understand, too. Um, it's important to know sort of how good, how good does this really have to be. So after the discovery of Ivacaftor, um, they didn't stop looking for ways to impact F508-DEL mutations, and they were still interested in combination therapy. And the, the subsequent studies were done with a compound called VX809, which was a corrector that in phase two trials was shown to be beneficial in F508-DEL mutations, two copies of F508-DEL, in combination with Ivacaftor. So uh, VX809 was ultimately named Lumacaftor. So this was a study published... Um, showing that Lumacaftor-Ivacaftor combination improved FEV1 in patients with two copies of F508-DEL. And if you look at that, that is a pretty subtle difference, right? Significant, it's about 2.5%, okay? Um, it's not what they found in Ivacaft with the Ivacaftor and the G551Ds, but it was significant, and it was associated with improved symptom scores, 
and a significant decrease in the number of exacerbations. Again, the decrease in the number of exacerbations add a proportion to the change that you see in FEV1. Making everybody wonder if maybe this is the more important endpoint. Maybe FEV1 isn't the right primary endpoint to look at. And that also could be a topic for another <laughs> discussion. Um, so after six months, you, they had, it, depending on the dose, a 30% or a 39% reduction in exacerbations with only a 2.5% change in FEV1. Very significant difference between those. Um, so after um, there were some issues with VX809 um, or Lumicaftor, um, it didn't have the best side effect profile. And so the drug discovery process wasn't done because everybody's looking for a better corrector. <clears throat> and the better corrector may end up being this medication, which is Tazacaftor, or VX661, and this was just published um, very, very recently, showing that the combination of Tazacaftor, Ivacaftor, in patients with two copies of F508-DEL had a more significant change in FEV1. This has a much better side effect profile. This medication's not FDA approved yet. It's at the FDA right now um, under review, and I think all the expectations are that um, it will get approved at some point in the very near future. Um, it's important to note, so none of these, neither of these medications, either the combination Tazacaftor, Ivacaftor, or Lumacaftor, Ivacaftor, had benefit in patients with only one copy of F508-DEL. And that's really important because that's a really large number of patients with CF. And so that's sort of still out there to try to figure out how we're going to treat those patients. So... Francis Collins said that the CF Foundation has shown the way, lit up the path, and what's been learned from CF can be extrapolated to other diseases. And I think that's true. I mean, I think this was pretty incredible. There's not any other stories out there of nonprofits partnering with pharmaceutical companies to promote development of drugs in the area that the nonprofit is an advocacy group for. I mean, it's not really out there, and it sounds a little weird to even talk about it, but... Um, but it worked, and it's continuing to work, and they're continuing to partner. And it, it's important to know Vertex is no longer the only game in town. So that was the beginning, and that was the initial partnership. And now there are other companies that are in partnership that have drugs in development, and competition is good for the marketplace. And so I think, you know, this is really good. There's a lot more people working on this, and we're hoping that there are going to be more medications out there available to patients, hopefully in the near future. And one of the things that they're working on are what's called next-generation correctors, so adding a triple combination. So this is just showing you um, the F508-DEL protein is very unstable. And so you have the first corrector that can sort of bind and start to stabilize things. And now they're working on adding a second corrector that can bind to a different site on the protein and stabilize things even further to allow better and more efficient trafficking to the cell surface, allow more protein to get there, um, and hopefully promote more CFTR function. And there are a few um, next-generation compounds that are um, in Phase one and Phase two trials and a couple that are about to go into Phase three trials um, so this is just, um, so these are data actually that um, from Paul Negolescu that I was up until a week ago showing with permission from him, um, but where they were actually released as part of a press release on February 1st, so now they're actually publicly available, so anybody can show them. Um, so this is showing um, two next-generation um, compounds as part of triple therapy. This is in vitro data. These are human bronchoepithelial cells with two copies of F508-DEL. On the far left is just giving you an idea of CFTR activity. This is uh, oozing chamber data just showing flow um, in cell culture, so cell monolayers. And Ivacaftor in G551D, human bronchoepithelial cells, gets to about 50%. In uh, HBE cells with two copies of F508-DEL, the Tazacaftor, Ivacaftor gets you to about 25%. And if you add either of these next-generation compounds, and they had four, the other two actually look like this also, um, you get to almost close to normal. Um, and what's amazing, so this is two copies of F508-DEL. 
This was, you got pretty significant results in one copy of F508 Dell with these next-gen compounds, too. <clears throat> and in the press release, they showed phase two data. They're moving forward with phase three studies now with these two compounds. And this is, um, so this is one of them, VX445, uh, and this is showing um, FEV1 data. And you can see that there was in the... <clears throat> Sorry, in the dose on the bottom, a 13.8% improvement in FEV1 in the phase two studies. And the other one was 13.3% improvement in FEV1 in the phase two studies. So this is much, much, much better than the compounds that they already have to market. And so these are going to phase three studies in 2018. Um, and there are others out there. A lot of those data are proprietary, and we're not really allowed to show them. But there's um, proteostasis has a compound that is a what they call an amplifier, and so it's mutation agnostic as long as there's transcript. So the class ones won't work, but for any of the others, as long as there's transcript, it amplifies the transcript to allow more protein to be made to get to the surface, the idea being if you then combine that with the corrector potentiator, you have more protein being made, more protein to be brought to the surface, and then improve chloride flow. Um, and there's other companies out there working on gene editing. There's other companies like Flatley Labs that have other um, compounds um, that are, they have a next generation corrector that's in phase two studies in Europe right now that I think they're very hopeful they're going to have good data. So this is not just, um, it's not just one company working on this now. It's a lot, which is really, really exciting for the CF community to see so much, um, so many people really working on this, trying to find more novel therapies um, to improve things. So this was a slide, actually. Mike Boyle showed a really similar slide at the NACFC, and I sort of reproduced this because I like the way that he showed this. Um, and the idea is the, the CF Foundation is not done. I mean, their goal is to, to cure CF, and they want to find a medication for every CFTR mutation. Um, and so this is just showing you that right now we have 46% of patients um, that have two copies of F508 Dell, and they have good therapies. And maybe they can get better therapies, but they at least have mutation-specific therapies. There's 8% that are Ivacaftor approved, and then there's 5% that have what are called residual function or, you know, other, the other class 3 type mutations. Um, and I'm going to explain to you how this happened in a few minutes, but those are now Ivacaftor approved too. And so now we're up to 46% plus 13% done, and this is sort of what we have to do. So we have to get the 31% that have one copy of F508 Dell, and I think everybody's hoping that maybe these next-generation correctors that are um, going to clinical trials will help. Um, there's 5% up there that have no protein. Those are the class 1 people with two class 1 mutations. That's sort of an unfortunate group. That's really hard to, to treat, and there are some studies going on with gene editing, trying to, to help um, with that, but that's going to be a little bit slower down the road. And then there's the 5% um, of rare mutations, um, which um, we'll get to here in a minute. What's fascinating is if you look at, um, so when in 2000 when Bob Bell formed CFFT, Along with that came what's called the Therapeutics Development Network, which Jeff told you I, I direct the Therapeutics Development Network here. There's 70 TDN centers in the country. And the, the oversight is by the coordinating center in Seattle, and they, um, they sort of provide oversight to all the clinical trials that are being done in CF. They review all these protocols. They all go through CFFT for review to make sure you know, to make sure that they have high priority, to make sure that, that the centers are doing studies that are good for them to do, that actually match up with the patient population that they have. Because there are not actually that many patients. And if you, you don't want to have clinical trials that people view as really not feasible to find um, anything. So they really go through a rigorous review process to make sure that the right clinical trials are being done and that they're being done looking at the correct endpoints. Um, and you can see here that from 2012 through now 2018, the number of clinical studies being done in CF in this country is increasing. Um, it increased in 2017, and now we sort of are plateauing off in 2018, although we have more new studies starting. Um, and it, it's really, so we all feel busy, and it's because we are busy. So it's, it's, um, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to have all these clinical trials being done and all these people thinking about how to treat CF. 
So back to the rare mutations. There are, just think about this statement for a second. There are over 1,000 CFTR mutations which five or less people with CF in the world carry. Okay? 1,000 CFTR mutations which five or less people in the world carry. So how are you going to perform a clinical trial to study medications that could potentially treat those mutations? You can't. There's no way to power a study. Even if you group them in classes, there's no way, there's no way that that can be done. <clears throat> so there were a few what's called N of 1 trials done, where patients sort of act as their own control and you randomize somehow where they're on drug, off drug, on drug, on drug, off drug, and look at different data points in there. And those are cumbersome and expensive and um, hard to interpret, I would venture to say. Um, and it, it would be very challenging to get through all of the, those mutations and find treatments via this method. What happened, which led to that additional 5% um, of mutations being considered Ivacaftor treatable, was the FDA actually did something pretty remarkable in May of 2017. So the U.S. Food and Drug Administration today expanded the approved use of Kaladico or Ivacaftor for treating cystic fibrosis. The approval triples the number of rare gene mutations that the drug can now treat, expanding the indication from treatment of 10 mutations to 33. The agency based its decision in part on the results of laboratory testing, which it used in conjunction with evidence from earlier human clinical trials. The approach provides a pathway for adding additional rare mutations of the disease based on laboratory data. So this was amazing. And actually, this is amazing not just for CF, it, it, for any, anything where you have sort of a rare, um, unique patient population. So basically, they said there, it's been shown before the change in FEV1, or clinical endpoint, correlates significantly with in vitro data of human bronchoepithelial cells looking at CFTR function in a dish. So with these rare mutations, if you show us convincing in vitro data, you can get approval for already FDA-approved drugs for expanded indication. Crazy. So the, the CF Foundation, which likes to coin unique terms like venture philanthropy, called that ferrotyping. So ferrotyping is laboratory testing of CFTR mutations using cell lines to determine which available modulators they may respond to. And um, that, you know, is a pretty amazing thing. And so this has now been written up recently um, in the annals of ATF. ATS of the FDA's experience with Ivacaftor in CF establishing efficacy using in vitro data in lieu of clinical trials. And so this is now ongoing. There's, there's a, a, a CFFT laboratory in Lexington, Massachusetts that's testing rare mutations and available modulators as we speak, trying to figure out whether there's potential expanded indication and we can potentially treat patients with these really rare mutations who otherwise would never be eligible to be in clinical trials. And so you'd never be able to find modulator-type therapies for them. Um, so the other thing that this did, so this is sort of a, a back-to-the-bench-again part, um, and as we um, sort of segue into that sort of part of the talk here, um, in addition to the ability to um, look at in vitro data using these modulators to try to find expanded indications, and I think perhaps even more important, they gave us the opportunity to really better understand CFTR and these CFTR mutations and how CFTR functions in different cell types. Um, and, you know, I, I've pointed out several times in this talk that the change in FEV1 with these modulators in clinical trials is, is pales in comparison to the change in exacerbation rate. And so why is that? I mean, what actually is causing these exacerbations and what, what are these modulators doing that's impacting that? And, most people know that one of my main interests is in inflammation. And I, I told you at the beginning this was not going to be a hardcore research talk, but I did sneak in one piece of data. Um, so um, it's really interesting to think about how these modulators could be impacting inflammation. 
So inflammation is really thought to be a central feature of CF um, associated with parenchymal destruction, the development of bronchiectasis, and progressive lung disease. Um, CF patients are known to have a hyperinflammatory response. If you take immune cells out of a CF patient and immune cells out of a healthy patient and you give them the same stimulus, the CF immune cells have a more robust inflammatory response. Um, there's lots of neutrophils in the CF lung. They get recruited by epithelial cells and airway macrophages, um, and they cause a lot of damage and progressive inflammation. And you get this vicious cycle of patients are colonized with bacteria, they have inflammation, they get mucus plugging and obstruction, which leads to more bacteria, which leads to more inflammation. And what came first, nobody knows. But once this starts, it's nearly impossible to break. <clears throat> so these are some data from a paper that was published by Katie Heisert and Pradeep Singh at the University of Washington that um, the, these are uh, sputum inflammatory cytokine data, and they looked at 12 subjects with uh, G551D mutation who had been started on Ivacaftor. So day zero is the day before they took their first dose of Ivacaftor, and then they go out to 600 days. And what they showed in this paper, which is really interesting, so data that I'm not showing you here are that they showed that initially the bacterial counts in the sputum went down initially, but then went back up actually pretty quickly went back up, back to the level that they were before. So these modulators are not impacting bacterial load in the lung, but, but an inflammation decreased uniformly throughout this. And so bacterial load's not different. FEV1's a little different, but inflammation is very, very different. Um, and these are data that, so these are data Bruce Stanton and I actually recently published, um, still in press actually, so very recently. Um, showing, so these are human um, monocyte-derived macrophages that were isolated from patients with um, two copies of F508-DEL. And they were treated um, ex vivo with either VX809 or 770 on the bottom, and you can see the increasing doses. Um, and we found uniformly pretty significant decrease in inflammatory cytokine production um, in response to modulators by these F508-DEL homozygous inflammatory cells. Um, and so that's really exciting, like, to try to understand whether these cells actually have significant anti-inflammatory effect um, that may be related to their effect in CFTR on immune cells, or it may be an off-target effect, time will tell, which is true. Um, but it's interesting, and this could definitely relate to the exacerbation data. If they have a significant anti-inflammatory effect and um, uh, without really impacting the FEV1 that much. So I think... Um, you know, I've shared the story with you of sort of the development of the CF understanding of CF and knowledge of the CFTR um, mutation and that gene discovery process um, and how these mutations were developed. So my, my, my 10-year-old is doing some writing in school, and his, he's very methodical, and his teacher keeps telling him that every story has to have a beginning and a middle and an end. So we talked about the beginning. And I think we're still in the middle. I don't think this story has an end yet. I think that there's still a lot more work to be done. Um, but what we know now uh, through this story is that there's multiple classes of CFTR mutations, and treatment of all mutations will require targeting the protein in different ways. So there's more work to be done. Um, that these very interesting collaborations between a nonprofit and for-profit promoted the development of these novel therapeutics in a way that probably wouldn't have been able to happen in this time frame. And then the development of novel therapeutics has led to additional studies to better understand CFTR function in different cell types. And I'm going to leave you with two thoughts before I take questions. So one is that this matters. And we know it matters because in 2015, for the first time ever, there were more adult patients with CF in this country than pediatric patients. And that's incredible. So the patients are living longer, and they're living healthier. And living longer and living healthier means that they can hit adult milestones that they never hit before. So this slide was shown at the NACFC conference this fall, and people ask me all the time, you know, weekly, monthly, whatever, how do you do what you do? Like, I don't understand how you spend your days doing what you do. And this is why I do what I do, because it actually really matters to people. 
Um, and this is why I think I have the best job out there, because it really does actually make a difference to contribute to discoveries like this. So with that, I'm happy to answer any questions anybody has. All right, any questions for Dr. Asher? Yes. You mentioned that primate models didn't work out uh, for cystic fibrosis uh, at the Penn trial. What is the role for primate research now in cystic fibrosis? So the, the primate trials actually did work. The gene therapy trials at, at right, they, it was the human trials subsequently. Um, there, I'm not aware of a ton of primate research actually going on right now in the CF community. Um, there's a, uh, there's a, animal models of CF have generally not been great. Um, the pig model is a pretty good model of lung disease. The ferret model is a pretty good model of GI disease, but there's not been a great animal model that actually mimics the whole multi-system disease in a way that's been that useful. Yeah, Dan. So um, I think you alluded to this, but I was wondering if you had a, a specific question and answer to this. Um, it seems that the 508 deletion mutation would be an ideal target for CRISPR-Cas9. Um, can you comment on that? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I didn't talk about it too much, but there, there are, there, that is being worked on. Um, I think that there are people who think that that's true, and there um, is a company ProQR. They're working on a, 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 an ability to actually modify that in that way. I'm a clinician, not an entrepreneur or a, an economist, but I understand how the foundation could stimulate initial work. But why are more and more companies coming in to compete for just 30,000 patients? Is 30,000 enough for a market? No. The foundation is continuing to help promote additional work with additional companies. So through fundraising efforts, they have generated more funds to continue their venture philanthropy efforts um, to try to promote more therapies. What do you know so far about the correlation to the in vitro uh, relationship of using new therapies and actual clinical outcomes? Since we can't do randomized trials, as you pointed out, but we look at now benchtop data to suggest this patient might respond. What do we know about the response rate based on that? Um, we don't know a lot. Um, there was some preliminary data that was presented at the NACFC meeting in November that suggests that the response, at least in the ibacafter treated group, um, was the same. But that, I mean, the FDA just approved those new medications last May, and so maybe it was June when additional patients were being started, and that meeting was in November. So there's nothing published yet. It's a little too soon to have those data, um, so time will tell. It's a good question, though. Yeah, so I'm fascinated by this idea of venture philanthropy. Um, and I it's guess a great the term. Is, the question is, ultimately, on the back end of this, how does profit sharing work if you know how that works? I mean, I have a cafter, doing a quick search on my phone here, is $25,000 a month um, to be on. So that's $300,000 a year <coughs> as a permanent lifelong therapy. Even if you're treating 1,000 patients, that's 300 million, if I did the math the right, a year, forever. I mean, some of these prices may come down over time. But then again, as new drugs are developed and you're on two drugs, it might be even more expensive. So is the CF Foundation actually make a profit? Is there so profit sharing in yet? Or how the C initially, the deal was that there was profit sharing. A few years ago, the CF Foundation um, sold all the rights to profit in Ivacafter and the combination Lumacafter to Vertex for $3.4 billion, which is what they have reinvested in other pharmaceutical companies for the development of other medications. Yeah. This girl asked. <laughs> <laughs> to um, kind of follow up on that, again, I was searching on my phone. <laughs> significant disparities in outcomes. Mm -hmm. And what is the CF Foundation doing about that? You know, kind of following up on the cost, but even before these drugs were available, 
there were significant differences um, across socioeconomic classes to see how comes. So I'm just interested in terms of besides addressing the therapeutics, what are that's a fair question. So in addition to reinvesting in pharmaceuticals with the funds that they used from the Vertex relationship, they um, have developed programs to help cost share these very expensive medications with patients who can't afford them. And all the medications are expensive. I mean, we, we talk about Ivacaftor and Ivacaftor Lumacaftor as being very expensive, but even um, Dornase Alpha, which is the DNase that's inhaled, is very expensive. It's like it's very, very expensive, and it's very hard for patients um, to afford copays. And so they have formed programs where the foundation helps with the cost of these medications for families who can't afford them, to make sure that everybody can get the medications that they're eligible to be prescribed. So we're going to end here, but Ali's going to be around for questions. In follow-up to that point, I would say. Um, the infrastructure needed to support the care of the CF population is both an incredible model, but also an unbelievably large infrastructure for dealing with the supportive care among multidisciplinary teams and multi-organ systems that are not working, but also the expense of both supportive and now interventional care. So it's, it is a model in the sense of how much you can do to prolong the life of a chronic disease population. But right. At the same time, whether that's extrapolatable, if that's a word, probably isn't. To other populations, it's, it's unclear because the number of people invested and the time invested is enormous. The CF Foundation is really responsible for that. All right, please join me in thanking Dr. Isha.